The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Welcome in, everyone, to this episode of Bare Bones. I am Mason West. Uh, Kyrie Thompson will be joining us shortly when he gets on, but it is my pleasure to bring in Dr. Jeremy Allen of Midwest, Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. He agreed to come on, give a little peek into the world of sports ortho with professional athletes. A little background here, graduated from Rush Medical College in Chicago, Illinois, where he was awarded the prestigious William H. Harrison PhD Award for Selfless Leadership, Aspiration, and Collaboration. Went on to complete a family medicine residency at UPMC St. Margaret Hospital in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where he served as chief resident and was peer selected as the best resident teacher. He is a team physician for the Bulls, the White Sox, the Blaze, the soccer club, and Mount Carmel High School. I don't know how you have time for all that. How are you doing, Dr. Allen? I'm great, Mason. Thanks for having me on. That was a heck of an intro video, man. I'm 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 ready for the game. Are we doing something? Do I have to hit something now? Yeah, hit the gong, hit the buzzer, right? Go ham, run through a brick wall, whatever you want to do. That was that was intense. I I'm ready for football. It was uh, I was lucky enough to go on a show, and one of the producers offered to make an intro, and I was like, I need this, you know. He and you know it it gets it going, like you said. It uh, is it is much more intense than the intro to our podcast for sure. So uh, I don't think people come in nearly as hyped up after our intro. <laughs> Well, I might have to hook you up, you know, get a, get a next level intro <laughs> for some of those, you know, every other episode or something of that nature. For sure. But, um, you know, tell us a little about how did you become a team physician for so many teams? You know, what was your path like? Yeah. So uh, background in what what is a sports medicine doctor, right? Um, so sports medicine is a field that involves a few different uh, types of clinicians. 
you know, technically, Mason, you are part of the sports medicine field, right? Yeah, physical therapists are, are clinicians too. Um, sports medicine physicians can either be primarily orthopedic trained, and so that's the orthopedic surgeons that many people are familiar with. But in addition, they can have a primary care background, and that's where kind of the field I fit into. I'm a family medicine physician. I did family medicine as a, as a residency, so I'm technically board certified as a primary care physician. I did extra training, fellowship training in sports medicine, um, and thus have a certificate of added qualification, also known as a CAQ in sports medicine. And so once you get that training, you kind of become eligible to treat, you know, athletes and do more orthopedic stuff on a regular basis. In terms of how I got involved with my team, some of it is, um, you know, hard work and, and introducing myself to people no different than any other business or anything else uh, any other listener would be doing not in medicine. Um, but some of it also has to do with the organization that I work for. Midwest Orthopedics at Rush has been taking care of some of these organizations for a while. And because I was fortunate to, to, to hop on and, and, and work where I did my fellowship, I've been able to kind of get more, more involved with that. So an example would be as I'm, you know, the head primary care team physician for the Chicago Bulls for the past couple of years. And again, that's a, a role that, that uh, was bestowed upon me and was with Dr. Kathy Weber before me. Um, but I did do the G League team before that, the Windy City Bulls for about six years. And I like to say that I trained in the minors to come up to the pros. And, um, you know, it was a great, great intro role for me. But Mount Carmel High School, I have to give a quick shout out to them. I've been with them for about five or six years. We just won another state championship last weekend. So we, we I, I, I'm losing count, but I'm pretty sure it's 15 state championships. It's tied for the most state championships ever in Illinois uh, history, uh, tied with Joliet Catholic. I'm getting, listen to me spit Catholic school knowledge at you. I, I did not go to Catholic school. I went to Stevenson High School up in the northern suburbs, but I'm now Catholic school by physician. Um, and so uh, super fun to do that down at Illinois State and the, and the kids played well. So again, I got involved with that through some connections. My athletic trainer, um, uh, Emily has uh, some connections over at Mount Carmel. They went through a coaching change. They were looking for a new position um, and you just happen to be right place, right time. And then we do a good job. A lot of it's word of mouth. You know, you do a good job and, and, and people hear you do a good job and they come to you and then you just try to keep being a good doctor. I say first and foremost, to almost every person I train, every person who comes in, like, what's the number one thing I need to do to get to your place is what they ask me. And I say, you need to be a good doctor. And, and if you're a good doctor, the rest of it can kind of fall in line. But if you're not a good doctor, it's not going to, you know, people see right through that. That's so cool that uh, you mentioned you went to Stevenson. I actually went to Glenbrook North. So a little bit yeah. of a, yeah, a little bit of a rivalry there. You know, I got to hang out and do some wrestling meets in that ridiculously large school of yours. Yeah, I went many, many years ago. So it it, it certainly does not. Uh, I, I don't even know what it looks like these days. But yes, it was huge. My my graduating class was over a thousand people. Um, and I, my college was half the size. I went to DePaul in Indiana and played baseball there. And it was half the size of my high school. So I kind of went the reverse route of most people. Yeah. Okay, what you got? Hey, how are you doing, Doctor? I, I've been down to DePaul, actually, down in Greencastle, Indiana. A couple of tracks. Oh, represent. Yeah, well, I was um, so I, I went to Andrean High School in Maryville. So uh, every once in a while, we would go do an indoor meet down there at DePaul. So yeah, I, I'm familiar with uh, with Greencastle, Indiana. But um, you mentioned being a good doctor first and foremost. That that's you know the, the number one thing. I'm curious if you find that there's you know maybe uh, just kind of a, a difference in how you or, or, or like how one serves you know kind of civilians like us um <laughs> you know versus versus uh versus athletes because obviously I, in my mind i'm thinking like okay if i if i hurt myself 
um, and the doctor tells me to do something that, I mean, my job doesn't rely on me being able to run or lift or do th athletic things. So I'm just going to be like, okay, fine, man. But, you know, athletes, they want to run. They want to play, even if, you know, sometimes it's not as good for them. So how do you balance that? Yeah, I think you've hit on a lot of things there. And one of the one of the biggest misconceptions I think that people have is that we treat professional athletes different than we treat patients, like regular average people. There are things we do differently, and I'm going to get into that. But ultimately speaking, the treatment really doesn't change all that much. It's really just the goals and outcomes. And maybe the best analog here would be a, a patient who's a laborer who does construction work and gets hurt on the job. A lot of their workup and care is a whole not a whole lot different than an NBA basketball player. You know, you have to make sure that there's no structural injury. You have to say, how long are you going to have to be off work? What treatment do you need to get back to the job? What requirements does the job have? How are they going to replace you when you're gone? It's just the, the, the stakes are much higher when it's a multi-billion dollar industry that is on the television and everybody has fandom for. So when it comes to professional athletes, a lot of times the situation comes down to is we have to do things like imaging usually a lot sooner. So everybody's usually familiar with, they got hurt. I mean, I mean, we, you guys are a football podcast. How many times do you hear like they got an injured and we're going to get more information by the MRI on Monday, or sometimes they go get it Sunday night and we'll find out more information of which you then never find out the information until like the injury reports come out later on, but either way, <laughs> you know, and, and again, so like if I injured my knee and went and saw a physician the next day, very rarely, unless it was a very severe injury, would I be getting an MRI right away. And that's not because the doctor doesn't care about me and they care about the athlete. But the reason is, is that the professional athlete, we need to understand to the minute detail what specifically is happening because we need to give exact prognoses for like, are they out three weeks? Are they out four weeks? And that makes a huge difference. In addition, these guys' careers, generally speaking, you know, this is all they get paid a lot of money to be out on the court. And if they say there's a risk to go back out and you could do more harm, that that changes their overall occupational status and their possible chance to make money later on in life. And so ultimately, the imaging happening earlier is both giving us more information on do I need to replace the player, but also making sure that we're doing right by the athletes short and long term in terms of their career. But most of the time, like if somebody you know, gets a patellar tendon injury on the NBA basketball court or gets it playing, you know, I don't know, pickleball. Uh, that can be diagnosed by a physician with the history and the physical most of the time. And so with the NBA athlete, we tend to have a pretty good idea of what we're dealing with even before we do that. So it is interesting. And being on both sides of it now and having done it now for eight, 10 years, the biggest thing that I've learned about professional athletes is they're the exact same as us. I mean, they're much more athletic. They're usually bigger. They usually have had a different upbringing because they usually have been relatively athletic, gifted, and famous since they were like 10. Um, but ultimately speaking, like they have same interests. They want to learn more about their body. They respond to injuries the same way. And if you can respond to them in a very same way that you respond to a regular patient and vice versa. You should treat a patient or a regular person coming in the same as you would treat a professional athlete. Everything tends to go pretty smoothly. Excellent. Thank so you're you talking much. about, and you were talking about the process there of, you know, getting the imaging, get, getting to the player, you know, getting them information that they need, the prognosis. So once you go through that process, you know, they've begun rehab, trying to get back on the court, on the field, what have you, you know, 
talk us through the process now of the clearance, right? So how much interaction is you one-on-one -on -one with that patient, that athlete to get back? How much of it is the training staff, the rehab team? How much is the coaches? And then ultimately, how much is the player? Like if they don't feel right in order to get back on the field? Yeah, it's a great question and one that definitely varies by level. So the professional level is going to have a significantly more impact uh, uh, input from almost everybody you just said there. And as you move your way downward collegiately and then high school, it certainly starts to narrow down to more the athlete and the parents or the athlete and, and maybe one or two other people with like an athletic trainer. But when you get up to the professional level, it's usually a circle of people that are kind of involved in that. Um, I'm going to speak about orthopedic injuries because I think that's probably the most likely thing that we're talking about here. I mean, if somebody, you know, if DeMar Hamlin goes down and has a, a cardiac incident and we're trying to do clearance, that's going to involve a significant amount of like cardiology and, and stuff that we don't see on a regular basis. The stuff you're referring to is more of like the, you know, Justin Fields thumb injury, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the, you know, like when do we know he's ready to play again? And ultimately at the beginning stages, usually a lot of it's pain related. They can't, he probably couldn't have gripped a ball. So it's hard to say, go throw a football because you can't grip it. But then when you get to that end stage where he's gripping a ball, things are going a lot better. That's when the physician is doing an exam, making sure everything feels fine. The athletic trainers kind of putting them through specific types of drills, whether it be with a thumb or a knee. And then you have the coaching staff putting them through non-contact practice and making sure everything's going fine. And then the coaching staff putting them through regular practice and then everybody getting together. And this whole time, the athlete is very communicative at least in my personal experience. I'm sure there are some athletes that are not communicative, but most athletes that I work with are very communicative and very much advocates these days for their for their bodies because, again, they know how much it, it, they rely on that moving forward for their next contract or being available. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm just going to put words in Justin's mouth, but if he had come in the week before and, like, let's just say the exam was really good and he was able to do non-contact stuff, but then he's going around and he's just like, it just doesn't feel right it's something you can't really measure with an MRI or measure with, you know, strength testing. But if he doesn't feel right these days, that, that is an indication that like you don't want to necessarily put them out there and take the risk for that because the athlete knows their body more, more than anything. So, and again, there's a lot of advocacy that goes along with that. And then the one maybe you didn't mention, maybe you did, I can't remember, but agent sometimes plays a role in this too. Um, and, and again, I don't think that necessarily has to like get back on the field thing, but, but the agent is a lot of times a big advocate for the athlete. And you may notice a lot of athletes who are going different places around the country and seeing doctors. And a lot of times we find that that's kind of agent driven. So their agent has connections with other doctors that they know really well. And those agents trust those doctors and the, the, the player will go to that other doctor to get a second opinion to make sure that, that, you know, the team doctor is not off in any form or fashion. And that's very, very commonplace. It's, it, it's almost expected these days. And in the perfect world, the consulting physician, the second opinion physician and the physician who's the team physician know each other. And they generally speaking can communicate and every, you know, that it, it tends to go really well because you get more eyes and more experience. Occasionally it's, it, it doesn't go that way, but. That's for another podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that you probably like you don't have the scans in front of you. He's not your patient, but I'm, I'm just really curious about, for example, somebody like an Aaron Rodgers who just okay. tore his Achilles um, as, as far as, you know, as far as we know, like complete tear of the Achilles, you know, what, three I, I don't know, three months ago, not even. I think and, it's less than that. Yeah. Yeah. Less, less, less than that. And is opening up the window to practice and everybody is different while accepting that everybody is different. How would you advise 
somebody like in a vacuum that is, you know, 39 years old coming off a major injury and, and saying like, okay, maybe, maybe they're saying they feel good. They feel, they feel ready to play. They can do football activity, functional football activity. I guess how, how, how would you advise that person to communicate with you what they are feeling and perhaps recognize any warning signs that maybe they're not feeling as ready to play as they think they are. Yeah. His situation is really interesting and you're right. I don't have any inside information on that. Um, I did see that they opened his practice window. Do we know if he has actually practiced? He has not he... actually practiced yet. Yeah. I, so I, part of me thinks he's not going to ever practice um, or if he is, it's going to be in a very limited fashion. And again, that's not meant to be breaking news and I don't have any insider information, but you know, again, I think that there's a lot of circumstances that go in with this. You know, Aaron, Aaron's at a very interesting time of his career, right? I think this was not how he saw this going. Um, and that's a very difficult recovery. I think anybody who talks, you talk to after an Achilles injury, uh, it's a brutal, brutal recovery. I mean, Mason can talk about rehabbing that. It's 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 Oof. it's hard. Yeah. It's very, very difficult. And you can look to, you know, analogous athletes, you know, Kevin Durant going through his. And, um, you know, I don't even know how many football players. There was uh, the Cam Akers, I think, was like one of the most yep. recent ones. And he's back. But I think it took him well over a year to get back. And even when he got back, he was a more or less a shell of himself. Uh, and Cam is, what? 18 years younger than, or like 16 years younger than Aaron. So, you know, again, I think circumstantially speaking, my sense is, is that there's some things going on in the background there. I'm trying to figure out what the end of Aaron's career is going to look like and trying to figure out how to map that out over the next couple of years. Opening the practice window doesn't necessarily mean he's going to go on the field, but I do think that like, if he were to come back in the next few weeks and play football, I think that there wouldn't be a single person who would say that that is was expected or within protocol of how we usually handle these situations. I mean, that would be the only rehab I can think that would even be semi close to that would be um, when Adrian Peterson came back from his ACL tear. And again, Adrian was much younger when he came back, but he came back at some like five or six month thing. I think it was even somewhere around there, which is much sooner than most, not much, but decently sooner than most do. And he also performed at a high level, right? When he came back, which almost like never happens after an ACL tear. And Adrian was also much younger. Um, I don't know if Mason, do you know, we, I don't know many quarterback AC or Achilles rupture rehabs to be analogous to like, I just don't know many that have ever happened let alone in a 39 year old. I know now we're going to have Kirk cousins to also follow too. So uh, it seems like yes. we're going to get some more information on this, but I guess if you ask my personal opinion, you asked a question about how I advise him. My personal opinion on this is I'd be shocked if he played this year. This team seems like they're heading outside the playoffs anyways. So I'm not really sure what he like would have to gain. I think if, if I had the information, I think most of the foot and ankle surgeons that I work with very rarely is somebody going back to even like, I mean, they're just starting their rehab process at this point. I mean, not they've been rehabbing the whole time, but certainly like higher level stuff. I mean, Mason, when are you doing football yeah. level activity after a, Achilles rupture around now, <laughs> like yeah. to, be, to be honest, like to just introduce it. Right. We're not talking yeah. about like playing in a game. We're talking about like, you're just starting to introduce yeah. some of those activities. So I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm surprised just like everybody else is, but I'm also a little bit like, I think it's probably a little bit of stuff going on in the background and playing with the media a little bit too. 
I think it's just been a little too long since Aaron's, you know, heard his name in the media. So he's got to kind of get out yeah. there again. I mean, he's an excellent athlete and I I've never personally met Aaron or, or, or seen him in person to be honest. So I don't know what his body is like, but he, he certainly has been able to play at a high level to 38, 39 years old. And that doesn't happen with just any sort of body. So do I question the fact that he can recover better than a lot of people? I don't, I certainly think that he probably is working hard and his body is exceptional. I think that right now is probably more exceptional than I would even expect. And so to connect off of that, I mean, you're seeing a lot more soft tissue issues occurring in sports throughout the year, but also ligamentous. I mean, you talked about Kirk Cousins, right? You know, you weren't seeing a lot of uh, Achilles ruptures in quarterbacks. Now you have two in short order. Um, you talk about ACL is obviously huge in football. That's like the big, bad boogeyman. Uh, you see a lot of hamstring issues popping up in the MLB. The White Sox had a couple, you know, is it truly the fact that we're seeing more of these and, you know, is it just these guys are bigger, faster, stronger than they should be, or is there something else or is it just, nope, it's just, just kind of normal trends that tend to be happening. Yeah. It's a multi-billion dollar question to be honest. And I think the reason I say it that way is that there's been millions of dollars of research thrown at this and continues to be, I mean, we have excellent research in the NBA, uh, a physician association in which we do a lot of studies every single year and have great data on the injuries that go through it. And I think some things make sense and probably are reasons, but I don't think we can tell you one definitive reason why this is happening more frequently. The athletes are certainly bigger and stronger than they've ever been. I mean, you have 320 pound people who are sprinting faster than I can sprint. And I'm not the fastest sprinter, but generally speaking, 320 pound people going side to side and doing those things is incredible. That's a lot of load through areas. And so, you know, I, I think that that is certainly a reason for that. I think, you know, the amount of games people are playing, you know, the, how long the seasons are is, is immense. I mean, I think especially, you know, major league baseball is 162 games. That's crazy. Uh, basketball is 82. I mean, football's went to 17 games and that was a huge deal. Um, granted they have a week off in between, but it's also obviously the most, you know, violent of the sports The um, they travel a ton. So the, the, you know, like sleep is a big area that we're doing a lot of research in and it's almost impossible. I don't know if anybody, you two or anybody listening has ever gone on a trip and been like, when I come back, it's hard to go to work because I can't, I, you know, like, I just feel like I'm tired and then my sleep is off. And these people do it uh, like almost daily, every other day. And again, football is unique. They get to travel to one place in one week, but like, I don't know, the Bulls just got done with a four game road trip. They have a game tonight. They're back home. I don't remember what they are doing over the weekend, but like all of that stuff comes into play in terms of how your body recovers and does well. So I don't think there's one specific answer, but I definitely think we are seeing more of these injuries than, than we previously were seeing. We also do a very good job, as you mentioned, of analyzing and finding these things too, in terms of um, there's trackers on these guys like crazy and we have all this data and sometimes we don't know what to do with the data in terms of, is it preventing stuff and is it not? Um, it's just going to take a lot more research. Good news is we have a lot of people doing the research. Yeah, very true. And I need to ask you a very, a very selfish question as someone who like, has, we like selfish questions around here who has dealt with, I've had you know multiple concussions myself through sports. I treat concussions. It's one of my passions. How do you feel the NFL has done shifting in terms of its treatment of concussion? And then also how these athletes are getting back on the field there was a stat earlier this year. It was an amazing how quickly or how few games you can say some of these guys missed 
even though they were diagnosed with a concussion, you know, just earlier that that week. Yeah, I mean, concussion management has come a long way, um, even since I first was training. I, I, I did. You mentioned I did my residency at UPMC in Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh is known for being concussion central, um, and uh, the evolution of this is. You know, I don't when you had your concussions, Mason, what was the recommendations to you? Do you remember what they told you to do after your concussion, like what the treatment was? Uh, very different than what I have my patients do. It was go sit in a dark, <laughs> dark, go sit in a dark room, don't watch TV, don't talk to anyone and wait till your symptoms go away. Yeah. So one, we know a lot more about the injury, so we're able to educate a lot more. But two, we also understand that like taking whoever has the concussion injury and taking them out of their regular routine makes them worse. Mm -hmm. So I would beg anybody to take a human being, especially a kid in this case, you know, like young athlete and pull them out of their routine without a concussion and see what happens. <laughs> That's called traveling with them. And you know, you travel with like a 12 year old and like they can't sleep. They're all over the place. The energy levels crazy. And it, it routine is everything. We're all routine. We're products of routine. Uh, I would imagine that you both had a routine today that you frequently do. And when you take somebody who has a concussion, they're already susceptible because they have a brain injury. And then you take them out of their routine. You've just made it worse. And so what we've learned is that keeping people active is actually better. It's just subclinical, you know, subclinical symptoms active. So you should be making your symptoms worse. In addition, exercise. We used to tell people not to exercise until their symptoms were all gone. That's not good for anybody. Like we should right. be moving. Mm -hmm. It's just, we shouldn't be doing exercise that causes our symptoms to be worse. So you asked a question about like the NFL. I, I, I think leagues like the NFL, the NBA, I mean, rugby has been one of the leaders in, in concussion based research and, and policy. That's been fantastic, you know, to a certain extent, some of the other leagues too, but, but the, 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 the policies that have been put in place have shown great leadership on taking the injury seriously, understanding the consequences and making sure that we're doing everything in our power to keep athletes safe. And so I think the NFL is doing an excellent job with that. I think, you know, adding the TV aspect of it and, and understanding what, you know, we had those athletes sometimes who clearly got knocked out or were posturing and we, you know, you couldn't see the video. And by the time you get to them, they're acting a little bit more normal. I've been the doctor in that situation. They come off and they act like they're more normal and you're trying to do an evaluation, but you didn't know what they looked like when they went down, you were, you were on the sideline. So and again, that leads to a lot of media attention, as it should, because I think it's great that we're talking about it. But ultimately speaking, I think that everything is going in the right direction. And I think, as you will see five to 10 years from now, I think we'll have even a better handle where we're not, you know, overreacting as much to these things. I think the initial thing was was to put in these big protocols that held people out. And, and gradually, we're getting back to making sure that everybody's safe and getting on the field through regimented protocols. Um, the NFL has a protocol, a very regimented one. The NBA has a very regimented one. Even my high school football team, every Illinois high school has a return to learn program, not just a return to play program so that they have a, everybody at the school understands how to get the kid back to learning and getting him in school as fast as possible. I mean, this is all excellent stuff. Absolutely. Um, kind of one of the last questions that I know you got things to do. Um, you I'm here all Justin night. Is that Fields okay? Thumb earlier, and I would think that it's probably still. Um, I, I was I was just thinking that um, you know Justin Fields. Um, let's see, he he's probably still playing through an injury to an extent. I mean, well, he's I think just all not football on the injury players report. are he's still practicing. He's doing <laughs> his thing, right? Um, but what do you think? Yeah, I was going to say, what do you think about? you know, what 
like how he needs to manage this going forward and and what and i guess like you know what do you th- when do you think he might be a hundred percent because right now he's healthy enough to play but perhaps when do you think that it's it's just not going to be an issue perhaps yeah i mean i'll give you the boxed answer that we always have to give is i obviously don't know the extent of the injury and and such but but moving beyond that for a second i i, I find that when you talk to most football players they will say that they aren't healthy. They, after week one, they're not healthy and they're not healthy again until week 18 if they didn't make the playoffs. Um, and again, it's a rough sport and they all are dealing with things and they're in and out of the training room and getting massage therapy. And so to a certain extent, there's always stuff to go through. You know, the the, the hard part for him is that that's a pretty important body part. Um, and, and I think maybe the two biggest factors that go into it are both his pain when he uses it. So pain's going to inhibit function. If he has pain, he won't be able to do the things he needs to do. The second part would be the strength. So like if you gave him a strength test and had him push with his thumb, does he have equal strength that he used to have? Both of those things are important. So if somebody comes and tries to knock the ball out of his hand, he fumbled a couple of times recently. If he knocked the ball out of his hand and he doesn't have the thumb strength he once had, but let's say it's good enough to play, that would affect him. He wouldn't be able to hold the ball as well. So my sense is that it probably will get better from week to week. So long as he's not getting it re-injured, which is obviously hard in football. Like if he doesn't, if it doesn't take re-injuries each week, I think each week it'll feel better and better, but ultimately he, you know, they have a bye week this week. It's probably going to feel the best it's ever felt next week. Um, and, and ultimately it just hopefully doesn't keep getting re-injured. I think he was, Mason, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure he had it taped last game. Did he have it taped last game? He did. He had it taped up. And Mason, and Mason can maybe comment on that a little bit more, but like the taping itself is is meant to provide a little bit of stability so that even if he does take a hit to it, it hopefully doesn't take as much of a shock to, to the area. And then in addition, I don't know what he's doing in between games and practices, but they may have him in a splint or something where he's kind of resting it. Um, you know, just not using it in his daily basis. So if he goes to like cook some food, I don't know if Justin cooks food. Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. But if he goes to cook food, he's not overusing his thumb or causing pain at that point, maybe in something. Yeah, absolutely. I know he, they're doing a lot of a lot of work on that thumb outside. They're trying the best they can to not have it splinted as much as possible. Um, they're also using, oh, I'm going to have a brain fart now on the actual device they're using. Is it the ARC? So like wave um, shock yeah wave arc, thank you the arc shock wave and you know he's there was talks about how like within just the session how like the strength went up you know 30 percent things of yeah. that nature shock wave's interesting man i don't know how much you're using that um the data is kind of all over the place there's something there but it just hasn't really been like really teased out and so that's another example um uh, kari that you asked earlier about like professional athletes versus like regular people Professional athletes will do these anything and everything to try to get back on the field. And generally speaking, they have access to these, like in this case, shockwave that I'm sure was provided to them or they got a really good deal on. And, you know, the athlete's not being charged for it and it's probably not causing harm. But like if I were to send every patient to go do that right now, like that would be an out-of-pocket cost. It's not covered by insurance. You don't know if it's actually helping because, again, the data is kind of all over the place. And so there's different circumstances. If I told a patient, yeah, you can go get that treatment, the same one Justin Fields is getting, and it's going to cost you $1,000 for the next, like, three weeks. And, yeah, the data is mixed. It may help. It may not. Like, I'm not sure they would want to do it. But if I told them it was free and it wasn't going to cause harm, I'm, I'm sure that they would all want to do it. Yeah, exactly. I know, like like you said, you know, you I always try to be as evidence-based as possible with everything that you do. But then at some point, where do you start to be on the cut, try to be on the cutting edge, whether it's PRP injections. Yes. I mean, that's still not covered by insurance, but you're seeing good things out of it. You're talking about, you know, the shockwave, you're seeing good things, but 
unless you have a, a place, maybe a chiropractor, a physical therapist, just a, somewhere that has that available and is just going to let you use that. It's not really viable financially right now. Yeah, really. I I think that's really the main barrier is, is, is finances and availability and then training. And so when you're in the professional organizations, you're surrounded by people who have the training in those things, in addition to the access to the resources to it. And then in addition to that, like the, 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 the need to use them. And so many of those things tend to make their way out of professional athletes into the regular people, which is why so many of those products want to be in the professional locker room. So, you know, the, the Theragun, you know, started somewhere and now everybody has Theraguns, you know, and whether that is good or bad, I think is debatable, but ultimately speaking, certainly the branding aspect of it was a big deal. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show today. Uh, how can people find you if they want to, you, you know, it at the top that you have a podcast, where can they find that podcast? What's it called? And what if they need your amazing services to get yeah. their body top, top, top shelf? Well, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, I'm I'm happy to come dish about uh, bears or anything uh, sports right, related anytime. Right. I always say anytime I can talk about like uh, the sports side of things a little bit less than like the medicine side of things. It always you know gets my blood flowing a little bit. But so yeah, I, my name is Jeremy Allen. I'm a sports medicine physician. I'm at Midwest Orthopedics at Rush. We're in Chicago, Illinois. I see patients out of our downtown office as well as in our Westchester office. But we have providers in multiple other locations. Um, my um, Instagram handle is at Jeremy Allen MD. I do have a podcast, as Mason mentioned. My podcast is called Your Doctor Friends. It's with my lovely colleague and wonderful co-host, Dr. Julie Bruni. And we cover all of the, you know, topics that everybody could wish they could ask their doctor friends. So we tend to find big health headlines, things that people are talking about. We'll bring on experts. Our episode from that actually just dropped today was about psychedelics and how they're being used in medicine. On Tuesday, we talked about gen gene editing and how they're maybe curing um, sickle cell disease with that. And so we, we, we do some research for you. We try to give you the evidence, but we also spit and we have an explicit tag because it's meant to be a fun podcast that <laughs> brings everybody, everybody in because, you know, doc doctors can be explicit too. So you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, and then we have an Instagram handle as well. Your underscore doctor underscore friends, uh, YouTube channel. I think, I don't know. We're always trying to grow anybody listening. Please come check us out. Um, if you want to make an appointment with me, go to our website, rushortho.com usually have on online appointments or a phone number. I think that was enough ways to get a hold of me. I don't, I'm not going to give my cell phone. <laughs> yeah, I would probably not do that. That seems like a dangerous <laughs> thing, but to anyone listening, you know, yeah. I've been lucky enough to work with a good you know number of Dr. Allen's patients and I, you know, excited to continue doing so because he is uh, great at what he does. Definitely cares. As he said, you know, caring about the patient that's first and foremost, they want to feel heard. They want to feel seen. They want to feel taken care of. And, and he does that. Thanks, man. That was a big compliment. Well, I'll let you go, and uh, we're just going to talk stupid bear stuff. But uh, have a good All rest right. of your night, man. Thanks. Enjoy the bear's oh, talk. Just, just that. <laughs> just the bear stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very yeah. much, Doc. Appreciate it. Yep. See you guys. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Nope, oh, excellent. I took you off too. All right, Kyrie, that was really cool. Yeah, you're, you're just like, I'm, it's like, I'm done with you. No, that, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, kind of we, 
uh, didn't get a chance to ask him is about, um, you know, uh, difficult non concussion injuries, uh, you know, like, like high ankle sprains and, and things, but man, I, I think that, uh, it, I feel like that's an element of the game and, and, and you doing this podcast, I think it's one of the more unique things that we have in, you know, kind of bears related media, because I feel like that's often the part of things that we don't, I mean, we think of, we care about injuries in the sense of who's going to play. Are they going to help my team win? How long will they be out, et cetera, et cetera. But actually dealing with the people, how do you deal with the people and how do you go about deciding, I guess, how, how, how do you go about evaluating a person based on their word, basically like an athlete that maybe is healthy enough, right? But they're just saying, I just don't. I just don't feel right. Like I was thinking about that constantly with Justin Fields. Like if he was basically saying something to the effect of like, I could play, I could throw it, I could do it, but I don't know. It's just not quite right. You know, like how often was he saying stuff like that behind the scenes or how often would any guy throughout the course of a 17 game season, just be saying, look, some, some is just not quite right with me. Like, like the guy like Tevin who's constantly got, you know, bumps and bruises or Darnell Wright playing through the shoulder yeah. injury, right? How do you go about deciding when, how to let these guys loose and when to sit them? You know, I, I, I love that first person perspective. And we've all gone through that to an extent, right? I mean, you and I both like to, or at least pretend to still play sports. And, you know, you wake up one day, you're going to play pickup basketball and you know, you feel like absolute crud and you're like, but, you know, I haven't played in like three weeks, but I want to play. So you go out there anyway and you, or 25, 50%, and you're just, it doesn't really matter. You're playing pickup basketball. Like, it's not that bad. You're not being banged around by professional athletes and, you know, your jobs are on the line. But sometimes it goes the other way, right? Where you wake up that day and you're like, I, I'm not doing this. Like, I'm going to lay in bed. I'm going to do, I'm going to mow the lawn. I'm not going to, like, put my body on the line today because I don't need to. But these guys don't have that option, right? So, like, trying to figure that out of motivating yourself to job. go out there, but at the same time protect yourself, it's tough. Absolutely. I think that was really cool with and Dr. Allen too. I was is just thinking about just the, the fact that it's been more than a month in my right. Oh, what about your hand? Oh, I was just saying like my right index finger has been messed up for more than a month. And it's like, it's not bent or anything like that, but it like, it doesn't even feel like a jam. Like I can do all this, but it hurts on the inside. And I'm over here thinking like, man, did I get like a hairline fracture in here? This sucks. Fingers are tough, man. You know, it's one of those ones where there's just so little, and there's muscle in there, obviously, but so much of your fingers tenderness that, you know, when you immobilize for any period of time, when you have that injury to a tendon or the bone, like there is, it can be funky. Which is why I'm glad I'm not a hand person. I'm not enjoying it, but you were talking about, yeah. Uh, Well, we're going to, you were talking about, you know, Dr. Allen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So basically just the fact that he can, he was able to, you know, kind of like you said, to highlight the other side of that decision, decisions that are made. It's not just the doc. It's not just the team. We have these ideas that a GM or a coach is sitting in a room and just being like, ha, you have to play insert person's name here, or I'm going to hold you out or whatever. But it, it, it really is a circle of people making a decision. And he brought up the agent. Agent's a great example. Absolutely. Want to talk some bears? Talk some bears. So this is our just barbershop banter. You know, it's the bye week. 
there isn't anything specific specific to talk about but there's a lot to talk about at the same time there's a lot of ways we can go with this we're just going to kind of shoot the shit and to talk about what where the heck the bears are at where they're going i i'm gonna i'm gonna deliberately put a pin in the quarterback stuff right now because we start down that road because because if we start down that road that's all we're going to talk about so i do want to talk about I want to talk about, let's talk about the defense. Okay. So I kind of want to talk about what's real and what's not, because I think we need to be honest about first, like the the quality of opponent that the Chicago bears have, have gone up against recently. Um, Listen, you gone up against a couple of, of bad offenses like the Carolina Panthers. They are, they're, they're awful, right? They are literally the worst team in the league. And you went up against a backup quarterback and Josh Dobbs, who great story but not necessarily a a great player. Like, let's not go, let's not fool ourselves when when it comes to this. Um, That said, you did have a good game against a solid offense in in the Detroit Lions. So, hey, that is what we will, you know, absolutely take that. Uh, It's just so hard to get a gauge on what's, what's real with the Bears defense. I do think that, that this part, is real. I do think that Montez Sweat, the addition of Montez Sweat, has actually paid dividends. He's yes. he is a he is a good. He's not necessarily the the greatest pass rusher in the league or anything like that, but he is a good all around player. And what he does is he allows you to take guys who can't defend the run on early downs, like Yannick Ngakwe. You can take them off the field and you can play Montez Sweat instead. And he can play the run, but he can also look if you're passing on first or second down, he's an upgrade over somebody like Rasheen Green, right? Or Demarcus Walker. So it's just an all around boost. And then you throw in the fact like, like the sack that he had. I feel like that's a perfect example. That play was not set up for Montez Sweat to get the sack. It was set up for Yannick Ngakwe on the stunt to come inside and 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 cause pressure on the quarterback. But because Montez Sweat is so good. He beats his guy and gets the sack anyway. And, and I feel like since he has been here, the defensive front against the pass, it's not always getting home necessarily, but it adds one person that you have to be concerned about. It's not like you're, you're designing an entire game plan like, we got to stop this guy or he's going to destroy everything. He's not Miles Garrett, right? But having somebody that you have to worry about means that there's less attention on somebody like Jervon Dexter and you can move him around. You can move him inside. You can move him to the three technique. Zach Pickens, they've been moving him a little bit more to the three technique and he looks better. He looks a little bit better in the times when, when they, when they put him there a little bit more explosive. And then again, because he is an overall good player, it allows the kind of the misfit toys that they had where they had kind of guys who were good at defending the run and then not so good at rushing the passer or guys who are good at rushing the passer like Yannick Ngakwe that you couldn't play on first and second downs reliably because they aren't good at defending the run. So you don't got to worry about that kind of stuff anymore. Allows you to mix and match, allows you to play around. And look, the secondary has been playing pretty solid ball, all things considered. I mean, Jalen Johnson's one of the best cornerbacks in the league. Please catch the ball more, buddy. I mean, that's two pick sixes you could have had. Price of the brick not going up when you drop those. Um, 
And then I think Kyler Gordon, you still want to see a little bit more in the coverage aspect, but in everything else that you want a nickel cornerback to be doing, that guy's everywhere. Okay. He's, he's smashing people in the run game. He's able to at least play decent coverage. I, I think in some of these situations and sometimes guys make catch on him, but it doesn't necessarily look like he is bad or out of place. I think he's a good player. And I think just overall the, the blitzing, the timeliness of the blitzes that Matt Eberflus has been employing. I mean, look, I like it, man. I think he's doing a good job as a defensive coordinator. Specifically defensive coordinator. Specifically as a defensive coordinator, which you would figure he should be good at that because that's what he's been doing for much of the last decade. But it is good to see that he is doing a better job of that than the guy that he originally had doing the job. And to... I know people are kind of scared of this word because it's kind of a naggyism, and that brings up like terror uh, in people's hearts and eyes. But uh, like you were talking about Montez Sweat, he really has been that multiplier. So you put him on the field, and even if he's not directly making the play, even if you look at some of the double team numbers, it doesn't necessarily correlate like that all of a sudden the pressure is necessarily going over to him. You, there's a reason why in the last couple of games you've seen these turnovers increase too, right? Because when he's able to put create some pressure or he's able to draw attention and therefore pressure create elsewhere, you can have a, a duck of a throw and Justin Jones tips it up in the air and have that be intercepted, right? It helps with, for a Jalen Johnson be able to jump a route and get an interception. It helps a Kyler Gordon being able to play like the coverage that he's been able to play over the last couple of games. It helps yes. the linebackers flow better, right? And, and the thing that I love about Montez Sweat too is – you shift him around and he played some three technique in that Vikings game and was disruptive from the three technique. When you know that you don't necessarily have someone who's your go-to DeForest Buckner type player in that position. So that's been such a, so far the investment has really been worth it. And the thing that that's going to be really interesting going forward. And I know there's jokes about this on Twitter and all that of like, Hey, can you just like take Eberflus and Hey, Matt, we like what you're doing. We're going to demote you to defensive coordinator. We're going, to, we're going to bring in a head coach. Like, yeah, in a perfect world, like, wouldn't that be kismet? But no, that doesn't happen. You can't do that because he has done better as a defensive coordinator. You've seen the defense get better. You've seen, I think, him grow, like you said, with all the blitzes and a little, a little more exoticness to it. Not, It's not Flores exotic, but it's not vanilla what he was what was happening being in the year. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. The, pro, the thing that stinks is there isn't really a team – with an offense going forward besides, I guess, the Lions, even though they've been funky, that is really going to give us an answer about how the defense is because the Browns' offense is trash and they might have Joe Flacco playing, for all we know. Uh, you have the Packers. Maybe the Packers, I guess, would be the other one. There just isn't a lot of tests. The, yeah, so so the Packers have been playing better of late. I think since week seven, they're like eighth in like, you know, estimated points added per play and, you know, completion percentage over expected. But I think for the season, they are firmly average, like literally team number 16 in terms of DVOA. Um, so I think that they, that, that, that's a, that's a decent offense. I think Detroit, you would think would be a good test, but their offense hasn't been that good recently. Right. So I, I think, I mean, you look, the, the personnel that's there, like, look, Amon Ross, St. Brown, obviously a really good player. They got a really good running game. Jared Goff always has that little bit of Jared Goff in him. And I don't think that this defense is as bad as last year's defense was, where Jared Goff is just shredding them all the time. So I think that there's, you know, when, when they when they play the Lions coming out of the bye, I think that there is definitely a chance for 
them to get on him a little bit again. And then you talk about the rest of the opponents there. Let's go ahead and, and go down the list in terms of DVOA. Arizona Cardinals, 26th. Who? Cleveland Browns, 28th. Not Ooh. good. Atlanta, 23rd. So you got a lot of like bottom 10 offenses that you're about to go against. Yeah. Um, so you're not going to get true answers from the upcoming games in terms of the defensive ascension potentially, but you can try to do the best you can to just see what the package and totality looks like, right? Are the players playing off each other? Are they flowing to the ball? You no, know, things like that. So to take the next couple games with a grain of salt, of course, based on opponent, but at least you like what you're seeing. At least not the other way. At least they still don't look anemic as a pass rush. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And and I think that's the interesting thing about, I feel like the Matt Eberflus model of the, you know, even in his time in Indiana or Indianapolis, it wasn't necessarily that his pass rushes were ever good because they generally weren't. It's mostly that they weren't awful. They had like just enough juice and then the coverage behind it was good. And so I, I think that that is sort of the look, if you do enough from on the front four and enough from a pass rushing perspective, then the back end in theory can take care of the rest. I think that's sort of the, the model that they've been operating under. They just did not have the personnel for that earlier in the year. They were not playing nearly that well. And now I think that what you're seeing is you've got Montez Sweat, you've got Jervin Dexter playing much, much better football. I mean, I don't know necessarily that it's like, oh, yeah, he's the three technique of the future or like he is a, you know, budding top 10 defensive lineman, but he's definitely playing better football. He's just brutishly strong, got the long arms. You've seen him affect some throws just by just by being there and waving his arm. And so I, I think that you're at a point where they are they are functioning enough you know, kind of in that Matt Eberflus defensive mold to where now the things on the back end are good enough to cause problems. So obviously at quarterback, you had Josh Dobbs. You didn't have Justin Jefferson. But what was your thought process on players like Terrell Smith and Eddie Jackson? Terrell Smith starting in the place of the injured Tyreek Stevenson and what he might be able to do going forward. I've always thought he was kind of a Jalen Johnson insurance policy. And then with Eddie Jackson, considering what his contract and the outs might be next year. I think, I think Terrell Smith, I mean, again, cause you're talking about a day three pick here. I mean, played about as well as you could want him to play out there. And there was a time where he was pushing Tyreek Stevenson for starting snaps and training camp. Like they had Terrell Smith working with the first team quite a lot. So clearly they trust him. They like what he can do. He's a, he's a physical tackler coming downhill. You don't get past him a lot. And I think that he's generally been okay enough in coverage. I mean, look, with, with rookie cornerbacks, you're going to get beat. That just is what it is. But I like the way that he has played, um, you know, when, when he's been healthy. I, I'm very interested to see what happens here because there's a, there is a world in which you, you've got Tyreek Stevenson, obviously as, as potentially a starter opposite Jalen Johnson, and you could extend Jalen Johnson they were working Terrell Smith at safety in training camp. Yeah, Maybe there is a world in which he plays safety for you and Eddie Jackson hits the road, right? Because I, I feel like one way or another, his, his time with the Chicago Bears is probably just about up. He's not the same player anymore. I, and your safety depth needs some help. 
Now, I mean, you can obviously just draft another safety and and go from there. But I, I think if you wanted to fix things in-house, you could do that. That said, there's a, also another world in which you could say, hey, Jalen, you've been, you've been great. We like you, but not willing to pay you what you want to be paid. We'll take the comp pick and Terrell, you know, Terrell Smith and Tyreek Stevenson, young corners on either side. And, and we'll, we'll rock with that. That could happen. Now I would much rather play pay Jalen Johnson because I think he's that level of player and he's proving it. But I, I think that one way or another, whatever you decide to do with Smith, he's definitely earned some playing time going forward. I would agree. Yeah. You got to figure out a way to get him on the field, especially like Tyreek Stevenson has been good. He's had some issues right with, with penalties. I mean, Terrell Smith also had one. So like, that's I think at least one, maybe two. Um, so take that with a grain of salt, of course. Um, they both are very physical corners, but you have to be able yeah. to be able to play the game <laughs> like with that physicality. And so far yes. Tyreek's is kind of drew the ire of the referees. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they can manage that. Um, again, avoiding quarterback for now. What do you think about the running back situation from last game where it seemed like Roshan got a lot more run than Quill Herbert did? I think that we are starting to see the rise of the Roshan supremacy. Uh, I think that Khalil Herbert is the most dynamic runner of that group for sure. And I mean, I would be curious to see, you know, what, what could happen if Deontay Foreman is able to come back healthy, because I think, again, he was, you know, probably like Khalil, I, I would still say Khalil Herbert was the most dynamic runner, but Foreman was, was a pure angry downhill physical presence that you that you want in this offense i think roshan has a little bit of both of them but what i think roshan brings the most still got to work on the blitz pickup i mean i think he's going to get there that was one of the things that he was billed coming out of texas did you see the really one where he at. picked up two vikings on the same play yes yes i i definitely did see that wow. I, I mean i've also seen spots where where he's gotten beat on blitz pro but look he's a rookie that stuff's going to happen but what i think I've been a little bit more impressed by and what I think this team needs right now. He's the best pass catcher out of the backfield of that group. And I think when I look at what Justin Fields, I think was missing earlier in this season, one of the things he was missing, it was a reliable pass catching option out of the backfield. David Montgomery was that guy last year that you could dump it off to him and he could create some extra yards for you. He had reliable hands and and you could just you could just trust him. Just put the ball in his hands. He'll go do his thing. And I think that Khalil Herbert never been the most natural catcher of the football out of the backfield. And then you also had concerns about his pass pro. And Deontay Foreman catching the ball is something he can do, but it's never been something he's really been asked to do. But Roshan, I think that in the little bit of time he's been asked to catch the football out of the backfield, I think he's looked nice. And I think that going for these last five games. I think I want to see him get a couple more opportunities, whether it's checkdowns or whether you run actual routes for him, because I think that that is something that is potentially missing still from the Bears offense, uh, an area that they could tap into a bit. Well, if you look right now, uh, Roshan is fourth on the team in receptions with 24, and he's also fourth on the team in yards, which is 131. Now, keep in mind, I mean, it's a little bit of a, of a misnomer just because, you know, it's DJ Moore with 70 commit with 56 and then you drop all the way to Darnell Mooney at 25, then Roshan 24 in terms of those receptions. So the ball's not exactly getting spread out evenly across the board. These other receivers aren't doing anything. Yeah. I mean, the next receiver after that is Scott with 10 
you know, so take take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. But I like you were saying though, I would love to see Herbert used almost in an Austin Eckler-ish way in terms of the pass catching. Like get him on some angle routes, right? I would like get him into some open space. Um, one thing we haven't seen at all, and this is me just because I think it'd be fun. Uh, we haven't seen any of the um wildcat stuff. You know, he was a quarterback before, so like I think that would be cool. That would also be one less hit that Justin's taking. Like, you know, just more of that would be fun. It might be fun. I I, I feel like I'm at a point where I think that that might be that might be fun to do every once in a while. But if you don't trust the guy to do it, don't do it. I, I did like uh, they had Deontay Foreman do it at one point, and he had a nice little runoff of it that was called back because of a penalty. Because of course, of course. it was. I I think that for these next five games, though. In terms of that, I just want to see the hand and you know the, the ball in Justin Fields' hands as much as possible because I think whether he's running it or passing it, I, I, I think it's got to start with him because there are questions that need answering. So and one thing you just mentioned there, uh, the penalty, right? So it, it was actually pretty even when you look at it. So the Vikings, five penalties for 63 yards. The Bears had five, but it was only for 29 yards. But, you know, in previous games, it always seems like the, the hits principle forgot the S kind of a thing. Um, is that, is that this team? Is that in terms of the players, is that a coaching issue because they're just not hammering the fine details, you know, or is, or is it just us as Bears fans thinking that it's a problem, but it's more equal across the board. I think anytime you're talking about penalties, there's going to be an element where it's both because in the end, you can't, as a coach, go out there and make the players do everything right. I mean, if a player's making a mistake, if they're, if they're false starting, like they're false starting, right? You know what, you, on, on offense, you know what the snap count is, right? It, it, it's like you, you shouldn't be making that kind of mistake. Illegal formations, you should know where you're supposed to be lining up. But I think when you're... 12 men in the, well, okay. So 12 men in the huddle, I, I feel like that's a little bit of a gray area because you should know the personnel groups as players, but you know, you also have to, you have to catch that kind of stuff as a coach. Yeah. Right. And so and I think that there is a little bit of both there because if your team becomes a team that is known for penalties, game killing penalties that, that continually set you back illegal motions, illegal formations. I mean, hands to the face and holding and stuff that that stuff happens. That's part of the but, game. Yeah. Right. But I think personal foul penalties, things that have to do with discipline, you 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 can't have that kind of stuff consistently and think that the coaching staff is doing a good job. And, and look, so you so you mentioned penalties. The Chicago Bears as of of this week are fourth in the league in terms of penalties called against them. And, and the penalty yardage, let's see what the penalty yardage is. They are second in penalty yardage against. That's so bad. That, that's bad football, right? That's bad. That's bad football. And, and that's got to go on the coaching. You can't be the, you can't be the hits principal team, the team that talks about playing smart and disciplined football, and then go out and commit that many penalties. You can't, you can't have that. No, absolutely. And I go, I do. I think it's, while it's both, I think it absolutely is. Like you said, you cannot walk the player through the play and, you know, hold them back to prevent a false start. Um, I mean, I remember oh, being. Can I, can I actually give you something that's a little wild? So, 
as of the the Chicago Bears have committed as many penalties through 12 games as they did all of last season. That's bad. And and last year they committed 80 penalties. That was the third least penalized team in the NFL. (laughs) I mean, that, again, what do you you say about that? How do you go from being one of the least penalized teams to one of the most penalized teams? Is that all just the players being stupid or is it bad coaching? It's got to be both to me. It has to be both, um, especially when, you know, the players haven't changed a ton from last year. I mean, yes, you brought in some new people, but it's not like a lot of the new acquisitions. I mean, Darnell Wright's probably one of the few that count because he has been getting a lot of penalties. Um, but it's not like DJ Morris racking up the penalties, right? It's not like, I mean, Trukavon Dexter got one that should not have been a penalty on Monday. Like, heaven forbid, a large man has to try to slow down his body weight falling. But like, I mean, yes, I would, I would lean. Some, sometimes you, you're going to get penalties called for playing. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I um, mean, sometimes you're going to get penalties for playing the game. It's why. And then again, continuing down this path, we talked about the running backs. We talked about one of the reasons why we think Roshan Johnson got besides the pass catching, also the pass blocking the offensive line has been, in my opinion, better, right? This is the best line that uh, the quarterback we have not talked about yet has played with since really he's been on this team. That being said, going back and watching that Vikings game, there was some weird pass blocking and decisions made and just like going the wrong direction. To, to give an example, the one play um, in the first drive where it looks like Roshan just blew an assignment, when you really look at it, the sack that really led to the field goal attempt that missed, when you look at it, it just looks like, Darnell Wright was just wrong and just didn't block who he was supposed to. And that happened a couple different times throughout the game. And and that's, and you can look at that and say, that's rookie stuff in the same way that on the, on the play where Justin Fields misses DJ Moore on that sideline route it was on the third down uh, where he th- throws the out route and he misses you could obviously say, okay, Justin, you got to be a little bit better in terms of setting your feet and making that throw. It's actually one of the he threw a couple throws with anticipation oh, in he this did. game, uh, but they weren't they weren't they weren't completed. But again, he's got a he's got a defensive end unblocked right in his face because Braxton Jones didn't block him. He went out to and and, and I think that. That uh, if you subscribe to Patreon and, and you look at JT O'Sullivan's breakdowns on this, he, he talks about this. There's no world in which a big should not be blocking a big. So if you've got a defensive end right in front of you, Braxton Jones, you would think that the, the, the left tackle would not go out to block a blitzer and leave the running back to come and take on the defensive end. And maybe that was something that they didn't pass off correctly in terms of maybe maybe Cody Whitehair was supposed to take that block. I mean, who knows? But but again, it's, it's that kind of stuff. To me, that's coaching and that's discipline. Now, the Minnesota Vikings do a lot of weird stuff. They do a lot of, of unique kinds of blitzes, but that was a scenario to me where that shouldn't happen. Yeah. That, that, sh- that shouldn't happen. Because I think there's there's a world in, in which you could easily see you if you see the blitzer coming from the secondary, that's Cody Whitehairs. Boom, he's got that. Braxton Jones, block the guy right in front of you. Roshan Johnson come across the quarterback, 
and take on the blitzer coming from the other side, and then you can complete that pass. And and all the matchups are are fine. It's right. It gets picked up because the ball was coming out anyway. So there are just things that that looks like bad preparation to me. That's bad coaching. Look, sometimes you're going to make mistakes in, in the heat of the moment, but when you see how many mistakes the Chicago Bears offensive line is making, some of it just doesn't add up to me. I just don't, I just don't get it. And that's not even mentioning Lucas Patrick, who multiple times just got his underwear pulled over his head, candy taken. Like it was, he was there. The block was there to be made. And then all of a sudden he's falling down, looking back and being like, Hey, watch out. Like that happened so many times. He, he, he just, he just gets, he's, he just can't block. I mean, <laughs> which is important for linemen for those who don't know. He's, he just does not hold up very well. I mean, he, he does the best he can, but he's squaring a guy up and just straight getting beat a lot of the time. And, and listen, all that is to say, like, let, let's, let's do the overall positive that you were just talking about. The offensive line has been better. Yes. And I think that it's not fair to say the offensive line's been bad. And that's why Justin Fields, you know, missed some opportunities. I mean, there were some cases, especially early in the game when I think that did happen, but then there were times later in the game when Justin Fields just missed stuff. The protection was fine and people were open. So you can't always blame it on that. But I think that especially early in games, when he's seeing guys get beat and defenders coming free right in his face, I mean, that that affects you going forward in, in, in the game when you don't always feel comfortable. And I feel like he's such a rhythm kind of passer that if you throw off the rhythm early in the game, sometimes it is hard for him to get that back. And that's something that he's got to be better at. I mean, let's just be completely honest. But, I mean, it just it, it hurts to, to think that you didn't have a better plan than Lucas Patrick. And then you played, so you tried playing Cody Whitehair at center and it didn't work out and you didn't want to do it against Detroit. So then when Lucas Patrick gets hurt, Dan Feeney's in the game and Dan Feeney can't get the snap count right. Like, I, I just, I just feel like if you had, if you had a center that could hold up better than this, this offensive line might be looking really, really good, but you don't have that. So it is what it is. All right. Another transition really quick before we jump into the big, big convo. We have to really quickly, and this is kind of blend into it anyway, but play calling, play design, all that stuff. You know, I the one I'm going to tease out before I let you take off on this is uh, we just got into the second quarter of this Vikings game. Uh, the They had called this crazy fourth and 10. Like they actually went for it, which I didn't expect. I think very little people did. Cole Komet wide open. It was awesome. Great play design. Um JTL yeah. Sullivan, again, you mentioned it did a great breakdown on it in terms of, of how they got Cole open. And actually, he gave Cole his flowers, which is funny because the bit that he has against Cole, yada, yada, yada. They get down into the red zone. On third down, they call what seems to be a screen pass to Roshan Johnson. The thing that doesn't make any damn sense is when you look at the matchup and the numbers, they have even numbers of, of defenders and offensive players on that side. But then what they have is the only person that really blocks is Equinemia St. Brown. Everyone else goes out on a route. Like if you freeze frame it, DJ Moore is open on a corner route, but that's not intended to be that. It's a it's a screen pass to Roshan. So why is DJ not blocking? Why is Cole not staying in and blocking? Why is Equinemia St. Brown the only one that's there blocking on this screen pass on third down and four, I believe, when you have a chance to score? It's 
mind-boggling. And that's just one example in this particular game where the play design and concept and feel make no sense. And listen, I I, I really like Cole Komet. I think he's definitely I think he's probably at this point a top 10 tight end. Um, he's been reliable. Stop throwing him screens. Stop. There's no point to ever like, do it. The, like him split out the, wide on a screen with Tyler Scott walking. First, look, li- listen, listen, listen. I understand that you know with a script in theory, you're trying to see how a defense reacts to a thing. Why wouldn't you throw that screen to Darnell Mooney or Tyler Scott? Why, why, what, why, why do we have to throw this to Cole Komet? Why does that have to be? Oh, we got to get the ball in Cole's hands and get him in space. No, you don't. I mean, and 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 then and then the, the and then the drive gets killed. That first drive gets killed because they're trying to throw a screen to Cole Komet, and it gets stopped up right away. Yep. Um, I I think they still have a personnel issue in terms of how they are using them. You don't need to use Cole Komet that way. Use him the way you used him. As, as an outlet option, let him catch the ball. Let him surge forward for a first down. Get him the ball in space. Let him let him hunt against zone. He's so good as a pass catcher against zone defense. Do that stuff. Don't try to use him that way. And listen, I think another thing that frustrated me a little bit about the blitz being, I, I understand you threw those screens because you saw a bunch of zero looks and you wanted to, and you wanted to beat those looks. And sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't because the blocking wasn't good. And again, you can't run that over and over and over and over again and just expect the defense to be like, oh, they're throwing another screen. Oh, no, they got us blocked up. No, come on, man. Like, it's not going to work. And I, I think one thing that frustrated me a bit is the fact that you're not trying to beat those blitzes by doing things like, you know, like a split flow, like a split flow, you know, inside zone pass. Where it's like, okay, Cole Komet drags across the field, leak him out in the flat, dump him the ball. Okay, why not do that? Why no? You want to talk about getting the ball in Darnell Mooney and DJ Moore's hands? Because I think Darnell Mooney's not getting the ball enough. Hand him the ball. Why don't you hand him the ball? Okay, get him out on the edge. Get him in space. I feel like there are just so many ways in which they get kind of locked in on okay, this is the game plan for the week and we got to do this because that's what the opposing defense does. So we have to scheme against that. And you're not necessarily thinking about what you have on that side of the ball. And that strikes me, honestly, as a very Belichickian thing. As you know, I've, I've covered the Patriots where you talk about teams being a game plan teams where they're like, this is what the other team does. And so we have to attack that specifically. Instead of thinking, here's who I've got on this side. They have to stop this. Yeah. They got to stop DJ Moore. They got to stop Darnell Mooney. They got to stop the running game. As opposed to being like, we are we are going to react to what the other team does. I, I, the, the Vikings are maybe a special case because of how exotic their coverages and their blitzes are. And the way that they can confuse you with their different looks and what they do post-snap. But I feel like I'm still missing this from the Chicago Bears. When are they going to get to a point where they say, we have these dudes. You have to stop them. You have to react to us, not the other way around. I was going to say that exact same thing. I mean, it is it is defensive offense. It's passive offense. 
Crazy this is the it's... kind of stuff that pissed me off about Dowell Loggins back in the day. He talked mm, about yeah. doing this like, oh, well, you know, we got to do this because this is what the defense is doing. I mean, okay, there's some You're the offense. You dictate that. what you're doing. You have the ball. <laughs> yeah. And that brings us to more or less our final topic, the quarterback situation. Um, where do you sit big picture? I'm going to try to make this as concise as possible. I think that there are plenty of measurables to suggest that Justin Fields has improved as a passer this year. They're obviously still turndowns. That's still happening. Um, quarterbacks turn things down. Ar arguably, Justin Fields does it more than other quarterbacks, but that happens. I think that when he throws the football, the numbers have, have improved. The passer rating is, is up over last year. Um, the touchdown percentage, you know, at one point was the highest in the league. Um, and, and he is still, I, I wrote about this for Windy City Gridiron. He was like the, the fourth highest graded deep ball thrower in the league or something like that. And he's one of the most efficient players in the league at it. He also, again, when he throws the short game has become one of the better short game throwers in the league in terms of grading and, and quarterback rating when he throws the ball. And, the, and short being, you know, between zero and 10 yards. I'm not talking about the behind the line of scrimmage stuff, which he's not nearly as good at, which again, the Bears have him doing at one of the highest rates in the league. And I don't understand that. I, he's, he's just not that good at it. And your team is not that good at executing it, but you keep asking him to do it anyway. So, okay, Justin Fields has gotten better. He hasn't made the leap, not yet. That is not entirely his fault. I think that when you see, when, when I watched that Vikings game on film, I saw two guys in, in Justin Fields and Luke Getze that, that don't trust each other. You know, I think, I think that Luke Getze maybe is like, you, you could say he, he thinks, I don't think Justin Fields can handle the blitz. I don't think like he can, he can just run a traditional drop back game. And that's probably true at this point. But I can also see that Justin Fields is like, Look, man, the protection hasn't been holding up. I don't like these routes. You keep calling these plays that I don't like to throw or I don't feel comfortable with. And so I keep turning it down and keep on having to create because I don't trust what you're doing. And that's not tenable. So big picture. If the Chicago Bears have a top two pick in the NFL draft, they should take a quarterback. And that is not something that I, I'm happy about saying because I like Justin Fields and I think that he is a good player. And I think that he can be at least an average, maybe above average quarterback with a different coach, with, with coaching that, that really plays to his skills. But I think that from what I've seen right now, if Ryan Poles is asking the question, what do I need to do to take the North and never give it back the way that he says he wants to. Does it make sense to pass up, willingly pass up a chance at a, at a talented quarterback prospect with a top two pick in the draft for a second year in a row, by the way, when you're not sure about Justin Fields coming out of year three, if, if, he, if he is going to be a top 10 quarterback in the league? 
I just feel like you can't do that. I feel like you can't do it. And that is the like extremely like cold, hard truth part of me speaking. I feel like, and, and again, this wouldn't be prudent either. If you kept Justin Fields and gave him a new offensive coach, it'd be his third offensive coordinator in, in four years. But if you did that, part of me thinks that like somebody like a Ben Johnson could make him a better player. And then you could invest that pick or you trade down or, or whatever. And you could turn that into more picks and you can stockpile a team that could make the playoffs next year. I think you could do that. But if you're asking long-term, what is the best thing for the Chicago Bears? It is hard for me to argue right now that passing on a quarterback is the best thing to do. And I, and I, I do not think as of right now that if you draft Caleb Williams or Drake May, like I know people get really excited about watching all the good things they do on field. I've, I've watched a bunch of them, and I've watched them against the better opponents they've played. And I see plenty of flaws. I am not convinced that either one of them is a surefire Hall of Famer. I don't love that hyperbole at all. But if either one of them could be as good as Justin Fields next year and then potentially be better, I don't know what else to tell you. I'm I'm in assess mode. And by that, and I put that caveat out there because I'm not and, in, and I'm good. I'm good with that. I'm good with that. Let's yeah. keep on taking the data. That's all it is. Like it's literally there's no reason to make a decision right now. So I'm yeah. not going to. Like if you put a gun to my head and made me make one, I could probably I, I could do it. But since I have five more games, I'm gonna take five more games. Yeah. Um, my and you could have, you know, some can claim that that's just me trying to hold on to a you know a buoy afloat in the ocean. And maybe that's the case. But again, I have five games, so screw you people. Um, but <laughs> with that being said, you know, I don't poo-poo anyone that wants to go either direction. If you're someone in the camp of, I, I'm in, the, I'm going to poo-poo you if you're stuck and slammed in the camp already either way, just because again, I don't think you necessarily have all the data, but if you're floating that way, I don't, it makes sense. I get it because technically, yes, it is year three of Justin. I can then throw back year one was a damn waste and year two, they surrounded him with absolutely nothing. So is it really year three or is it developed? It's like when you have a kid who like, you know, grew up in a shack in the middle of the North woods and didn't, wasn't taught to read. Are you really upset that it took him a little longer to learn how to read? No, you didn't give it to yeah. him. And, but yeah, and that doesn't help yeah. <laughs> in this situation. It doesn't, if you're the bears organization, if you're a bears fan, it doesn't help because even if he can make those developments with the right tools given to him, a, you can't say for sure that it's going to happen. And B, the time is slowly running out. And you're sitting here with, in theory, the first overall pick because the Panthers suck and are probably not going to win another game. And if they do, you're at least probably at a top two pick. Can you really say, can you push that away and say no again? And then you end up with pick nine the next year when you decided to turn down Justin Smith, your option, because what if he doesn't work out? What if he doesn't progress? And now all of a sudden, who's the ninth player quarterback you're going to take in that draft? Is, is that something you can even feasibly do? Now it goes the other way too. If you are someone who is entrenched in the yes, for sure, Justin camp, that's also a problem. Now, what I will say is I have problems with both of these prospects. Caleb Williams to me, it's confusing because while he does things better than Justin, and yes, I would say he's coming out as a better graded prospect than Justin yep. did as a prospect. Mm -hmm. That is true. Yeah. Yes. You're also though... I don't want to say it's lateral, but it's like lateral up maybe because he has a lot of the same problems. The time to throw, the hero ball, the 
you know, the the lack of the the fumbles. He's got he's got a lot of fumbles. Like that's a problem too. And like then he's got some other stuff. He's got character things that I'm concerned about. I'm concerned about the fact that he didn't want to talk to media after UCLA. Is it a huge deal? No, but like it's a part of it. Like Chicago media is insane. We are insane. You and I are insane. All the fans listening to this are insane. It takes yeah. a very strong-willed person to be able to handle Chicago media. It, if Caleb Williams is amazing on the field but can't handle it off the field and mentally broke down, this is me being extreme on this example, though. Of course, that's not gonna that's not gonna do anything. Who cares? Yeah, that's a problem yeah. for me. Yeah, and and I think that if you're if intangibles are part of what you're evaluating here, which I would think that they are, right? They have to be. I think that Justin Fields is probably going to grade out higher in that aspect than Caleb Williams is. How much higher does he need to grade out to overcome the, the on the field part, which I think they have similar issues superficially, but I think that there, there are other things that I think Caleb Williams does processes a tick faster than Justin Fields. I think he throws with more anticipation than Fields does though. Again, I keep on coming back to this. Justin Fields was throwing with anticipation when he was a rookie and then he stopped doing it basically after in, in year two and three. And I feel like we know why that is. It's because of the coaching because he threw, he threw in the middle of the field he threw with anticipation in a way that he doesn't now because I feel like for for right or wrong, he's been, it's been drilled into his head not to put the ball in harm's way in the middle of the field is dangerous. And, and, and I think that that has taken root in his brain, whereas as a rookie, he was just throwing the ball. And I mean, yeah, he took sacks and all that stuff, but I think that he was on a path to be better than, than what he has become. I feel like we just – we have not seen – the truth of, of what Justin Fields could be. And maybe we never will now. And I think you, since we haven't talked about Drake may yet, I think Drake may has, I mean, he's got a heck of arm talent, right? And he does some of these little things as a quarterback. He looks the part and you talk about him being like a Justin Herbert clone or like a little bit of Josh Allen in there with the improvisation, the way he can get the ball out of his hands, even when he's, you know, being tackled. But I think that he does something where he, he drifts mindlessly into trouble sometimes Sometimes he just does some dumb stuff, man. Like I, I think, I think like he just makes throws or makes decisions when he's running the ball, like trying to hurdle. Like, come on, bro, come on, don't do that, don't do that. I don't want my franchise quarterback being flipped on his head and breaking his neck. Let's but the not views have on, that. But the views, the highlights. Yeah, but but I I think that in terms of him you know, again throwing with anticipation and operating from the pocket and some of this quick game stuff. I mean, like there are sometimes you're like, yeah. Yeah, Drake May, he can get it done. Um, I think the unfortunate thing, right, is that if you were talking about the Chicago Bears having like the 10th pick in this draft via the Carolina Panthers or via themselves or, or whatever, right? If you were talking about that, I'm not talking about moving on from Justin Fields at all. I'm just like, dude, no, he's getting, he's, he's shown improvement. And I think even the little things, the little strides that he made against the Vikings, the turnovers were obviously awful, and that's been something he continues to do. But I think that some of the things he was doing against the Blitz and some of the quick game operation he was doing, it's like there's bits of growth there, right? He is getting better at some of these things. There's still a lot to go with. I just think that the, the problem is that this is not a normal situation. 
because the Bears probably are going to have the number one overall pick. So they have to ask these questions. It, I feel like it was different than it was last year when he went supernova for however many weeks. And you're just like, okay, I, I think we can go into year three and, and, and see about this. And then, of course, they they made such a savvy deal that they got the number one overall pick again, right? And part of me just thought this, galaxy brain, if you made a savvy deal again from number one, you know, or number two, and you traded down and, and you know, pissed everybody off and didn't take Caleb Williams and Drake May, but you traded with the right team. And what if they gave you the number one pick or like a top three pick again for the next year? It's like, <laughs> you never know. I just feel like it's unfortunate because Justin Fields is not in a fair situation entirely. Yeah. That, that, that is the case that they could just move on from him, but this is what it is. And I do agree with you. Let's collect the data and see where it takes us because there are some very beatable defenses coming up. And if Justin Fields puts up crazy numbers on them again, I think we're now at a point where through eight games of Justin Fields, you are now at as much good or at least not bad as you had bad early in the season. I think you're now at that point. If you could stack more good than bad, significantly more, and I'm talking like it's got to be like, it's basically all, like you can't have any bad from here on, really. If you can manage that. Well, and like we talked about, what is the limitation of that good because of, for example, he being allowed to? Like we looked at that Vikings game. Was he truly at all times? I mean, there's like you said, he missed some throws for sure. He almost got Darnold Mooney killed. I mean, I can list a couple, a bunch of things that he didn't do well in that game. Yeah. Would you say, I mean, and you pretty much already said this, so I'm, I'm just bringing it up again to make a point. Would you say that Luke Getzey's letting Justin win the job? I, I feel like no, because I don't think that's their focus. Their focus is not letting him win the job for next year. Their focus is winning games. And and that's why I think Luke Getzey called the Vikings game the way he did because he was worried about Minnesota's blitz. So how do we how do we beat it? I I don't they aren't they're not guaranteed to be here next year at all. So they can't afford to care about letting Justin Fields win the job. Here's what I'm going to say is I made the point about them being a game plan offense. They had a pretty good game plan for the Detroit lions. And I think they're going to attack that again. So you're not going to necessarily see 18 screens against the Detroit lions. You're going to see them attack the Detroit lions a little bit more. You know, you're going to see that you're probably going to see Justin Fields get after the Cardinals later on. And you you might see him get after the Atlanta Falcons too. So I, I think you're, we're going to see opportunities for him to attack defenses because not every defense is going to be the Cleveland Browns. But that and is that's a game I have circled that's on my radar. Can you that, imagine? That's another if, game on. If Justin went out and like played like and and played well against the Browns, I mean that that has to affect the narrative. It absolutely would. A million percent it would. I, I think that... The team that broke him in it, his like first start? Yeah, it, it, it really depends on what well means. Because I think that what you're going to see is probably something a little bit more akin to what you saw against the Vikings. The terror yeah, of the pass rush. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, man. But it's like, if Miles Garrett plays, the Miles Garrett is hurt. 
but he's probably going to play through it unless it is just completely unmanageable. Um, he's probably, he's probably going to play. So if he plays, he could beat you with one arm. It doesn't matter. Um, and that, and that's terrifying. So what do you do? You try and, and stop him from wrecking the game. That means quick throws. That means screens. That means, you know, quick game. Don't push the ball down the field because Miles Garrett's going to kill you. So I, I don't think you're going to see an explosive offensive game against them unless he doesn't play or something. And then it's a different conversation. How do you attack that secondary? Um, but I feel like that's a game where it's like execute the game plan, get us a win, and then there are other defenses that we can feast on. The Lions defense has been the worst in football in terms of efficiency since week seven. Not good. And obviously we saw Justin Fields have a game against them. The, you know, the, the Cardinals, not good. The Falcons have a good reputation. They haven't really been that good lately on defense either. There are going to be all kinds of games for Justin Fields to put up some numbers. If you could just survive the Browns game without embarrassing yourself against whichever backup quarterback you're going to face, which again, the Chicago Bears defense has been feasting on backup quarterbacks. I don't know. There's there's reason to believe that the Chicago Bears could be better down the stretch than we think. I don't know how to feel about that. There's a whole other layer that we don't have time for to dive into that for sure. But the last thing I do want to talk about before we get out of here, something we haven't really touched on, is also kind of the what a head coaching situation could mean for the quarterback decision. So, you know, in theory, does that matter? So, if you have an either if you're getting a new quarterback, if you're drafting a quarterback, you Ibrahimovic and Gessie need to be gone. It just is what it is. Like you can't have them developing a quarterback. I, I refuse. Um, that that universe doesn't exist to me. That being said, does in your opinion does it potentially matter who the head coach ultimately is in terms of who the quarterback is? So now when I say that, so let's say you know in an interview, and you're Kevin Warren, you're Ryan Poles, are they sitting there saying, all right? What is your Justin plan? What is your Caleb Williams slash Drake May slash whatever plan? Pitch me both before we bring you on. And then going from there, do you think that they're more like, eh, we're already going to be gone on Justin or we're, you know, we're, and we don't want to go with a rookie draft pick. So they're going to pick a head coach based on their preference. And with that being said, does the head coach matter where a Harbaugh comes in and says, I don't want to deal with a rookie. I want Justin Fields because I can do something with him just like I did with Kaepernick or you have a Ben Johnson that comes in and says, I don't want to deal with Justin, you know, so on and so on and so forth. Long story short, does that head coach matter? And will their perspective on Justin affect the hiring process? It absolutely should. It should. And, and I mean that in both ways, because I think that ultimately whether it's Justin Fields or a rookie quarterback, you got to have you got to have conviction on a quarterback and you have to have the right plan for them. We've seen too much of of terrible plans for quarterbacks here. We 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 need to see something better. And we we need to see from the beginning, okay, from the outset, from the inception, a coach be like, "No, th- this is my guy. I pick him." If that means that you move on from Justin Fields, so be it. But I think that Justin Fields has done enough to merit a conversation. It, it, as of right now, it's not, we throw Justin off a cliff to me, to me. Okay. Um, 
at the same time, it's not Justin Fields. We're going to pay you fifty million dollars a year. Oh, we even we're not talk there about yet. Part. Yeah, yeah, we're not there yet either. And the the money part, the business part, is probably going to be really huge in this. I what think is, Daniel Jones is what making forty mil. Was that his contract? Some, something like that. Something egregious. So Justin um, doesn't take less than forty mil. Shouldn't. I mean, and he's better. He's better than he's been better than Daniel Jones. And that's and that and that's the thing that frustrates me is people talk about getting Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones was never that good. No, like like that's what that's what frustrates the hell out of me is it's like at no point did you ever look at Daniel Jones and think that guy's special. What are you talking about? He threw like 15 touchdowns last year and got paid off of that. That's just stupid. That that struck me as okay. We made the playoffs. We got to pay this guy. You know you don't. You don't have to do anything, right? So that that was dumb. I don't think it's it's apples to apples with Justin Fields because I think that we've seen Justin Fields be a game changing playmaker, and I think he commands more respect than freaking Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones. Um, but but I think but but here's here's the thing. I think that with whichever head coaching candidates you come into, because unless you've decided you are completely out on Justin Fields, which right now I don't think you have, I mean, to me anyway, to, you know, if, if I'm Ryan Poles, um, even if you're leaning that way, you, you give him the data. And if Justin Fields plays well enough at the end of the year to make you think, yeah, maybe I'll keep him around. You ask whatever head coaching candidate that you have. And, and you're like, listen, what is your Justin Fields plan? What do you want to coach him? And look, if, it, if it's Drake Mayer, you know, Caleb Williams, whomever you've got, you ask them like, okay, who do you have graded higher? Who do you think is the better player? And what would you do if you had them? And if they decide that, listen, I, I, I would rather go with a rookie. He's more moldable. Let, let's just go with that. Or if he decides, look, I think this is a playoff ready team right now. And I don't know if I want to rock with a rookie at this point. Let's go with Justin Fields. And then you draft Marvin you, you, Harrison you, Jr. You 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 go with you go with that. You take that recommendation. And I'm I feel like at this point, I I would be fine with whatever happens. Um, and and I say that because I do believe that a that a different coach can get more out of Justin Fields. But I think that it is absolutely prudent to think that a new coach would say. I'd rather have my own guy. Like if it's August of 2024 and I'm sitting there, you know, getting ready to watch a training camp and I see Justin out there, I'll be excited. Cool. Clearly something was, sh was shown that there's a reason that happened. If I'm sitting there and I see Caleb Williams or Drake may rocking their stupid numbers. Not that I'm anti them. I just don't like the number 13 on Caleb and <laughs> 10 is obviously just burned for Trubisky. Like they're and also stop. Trubisky's not may may's not Trubisky. That's stupid. I'm also, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be like, am I gonna be sad a little bit? Yeah, because I was heavily invested and still am in Justin. But at the same time, I'm not gonna be upset. I'm not gonna be sitting there being like, I, I hope one of these guys fails. That's stupid. But you, that doesn't mean that you can't be bummed if that no, were to happen. Either way, and maybe you're, maybe you're a super anti Justin person. You're gonna sit there bummed. That's fine. But if you didn't, yeah. if you still have Justin, you probably drafted Marvin Harrison Jr. and an amazing edge or tackle, and now you're probably pretty happy. All right, that's the show we have. Your for today. team's gonna get better in the Your draft. Team's gonna be better. It's gonna be better. That's the show for today. Anything to close out the show with? 
Enjoy your bye week, Bears fans. Watch some watch some other teams. Watch There's some football tonight. Teams. There's you some know? bad football this week. I mean, the best one is probably 49ers Eagles. Yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's 49ers Eagles will be fun. I'm gonna watch. <laughs> why am I gonna do this? I'm gonna watch the Patriots because I mean part of part of it is because I have to, because I'm in Boston and I have to keep apprised of these things. I gotta watch Bailey Zappy again. Yo, Zappy season. Let's remember when that was a Stop. thing. Yeah, I do. And I remember how the Chicago Bears ended that. <laughs> and I, I was there for that. And I saw Ryan Poles. He was he was feeling it that day. Of course, it was the last win that they were gonna get, but he was he was he was pumped. He was lit that night at Gillette Stadium. I saw it. Um how what a difference a year makes, but I still think that one Ryan Poles has uh his his vision has become a bit more clear the last couple of weeks. I will give him that. But anyway, enjoy watching other teams and uh hanging out with your families, y'all. Yeah. Bear down, everyone. <laughs>